one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 342 for the week of Sunday, October 16th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. we got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's get moving. You're not kidding. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hi, everybody. And welcome as well, Gina Herlihy. Hey, Sawyer. I'm going to try and talk fast and smart tonight because there's a lot to cover. Indeed. We'll all try to do that as best as we can, so let's jump right into it with our first story, which is the deed to the Space Shuttle Endeavor has been handed over from NASA to the California Science Center, which is where it will be housed now that it is retired. And they made a pretty big deal about this ceremony, didn't they? Yeah, it looked like uh, the crew of Endeavor's last mission, STS-134, was mostly represented out there in California. Mark Kelly leading the charge to hand over Endeavor personally. And uh, it seemed uh, like a pretty fast transaction that NASA wanted to probably get this shuttle shuffled along in the paperwork so uh, there would be no controversy or maybe continued vying for Endeavor's title. Yeah, Gina, you're right. I thought the timing of this was was really, really interesting in that uh, because as far as I know, and somebody's going to correct me out there, but as far as I know, the the pink slip to uh, Discovery is still in NASA's possession, and ditto the pink slip for Enterprise. Um, obviously, Atlantis is is going to be. Wouldn't the pink slip for Enterprise be currently owned by the Smithsonian now? Oh, that's correct. You may be right. Or or maybe it is on loan to the Smithsonian Could be at on this loan, point. Because it I'd... seems like they're still trying to yeah. fight NASA for it, so perhaps it's on loan, yes. Yeah, so I, I'm thinking, yeah, so I, I thought the the uh, the timing of this was really interesting because I know some some folks in in the Houston area have been been really looking at uh, looking at endeavor and I think some of the uh, the politicos out there were actually trying to go ahead and vie for uh, NASA to move endeavor o- over to uh, uh, Space Center Houston rather than to where it was supposed where it was is is really supposed to go which is the uh, um, California Science Museum. This this opened the door really uh, for another uh, state to be heard about Enterprise. Um, Senator Sherrod Brown um, had written uh, Charles Bolden. Uh, Senator Brown is from uh, the Ohio area, uh, basically saying that uh, yeah, we'd really like you to go ahead and, and possibly reconsider. Your decision on Enterprise based on what was going on, you know, in New York with uh, the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum's decision to move Enterprise off-site, and I believe it's across the street. Um, the the new site is across the street from from the facility. Um, in a rather uh, in a rather interesting interesting area that has got people in a bit of an uproar. Um, also saying, did did NASA know? about this change and so on and so forth. So, um, again, uh, uh, Senator Brown was saying, you might want to just kind of reconsider this whole thing. He called it, uh, the whole thing, quote, a bait and switch, close quote. And according to the Ohio Daily News, he writes, quote, I am amazed and disappointed that you would choose to proceed with your original decision Given the serious flaws in the selection process and New York's recent decisions regarding their shuttle site, 
again, here we go. So I don't think this whole thing is over. I think Houston is still going to try to steal Enterprise away, even though I believe about last week or two weeks ago, a deal was struck to send the Explorer mock-up that is sitting over at uh, the Kennedy Space Center down to uh, down to Houston as sort of a, a consolation prize. Uh, this ain't over yet, but it, it, you know there'll be a lot of hem and hawing. I think a lot of fist pounding on tables. But when the dust clears, I think Enterprise is going to New York. I don't think this decision's going to get rescinded. No, I, I I really think the fact of the matter is is they made decisions based on the largest population centers or the largest tourist draws, anyways, because they want these space shuttles seen by the largest number possible. And I think that was always top of mind in the selection process. Forced to agree to agree with you. Although part of the selection process did say, uh, you know, significance to the history of the shuttle program, um, but I think that kind of just got thrown away somehow. And as you said, there, Gina, it is. It was all due to who is going to see or how many people are going to see these machines, and that was really, really the. Uh, uh, the tipping point, and that's what got uh, uh, New York a shuttle. Right, because New York really doesn't have any historic claim to the space shuttle like California does since they were built there. Right. Do they? No, I didn't think so. No, they don't. In fact, uh, the interesting thing is if, is if you look at some of the, the voting record of some of the politicos in, in New York, um, a lot of them have been anti-NASA and anti-space for the most part. Um, this was just, again, a, uh, I mean, I know New York has got a small little, uh, little, little NASA center, uh, in Manhattan, uh, that, uh, does earth science research for the most part, but that's really, really it. And, and it's not, not a huge, you know, n- n- huge NASA facility the same way, say Houston is or, or, or Marshall or Kennedy, um, so I guess that's really only Manhattan's only claim to fame as far as as far as space is concerned. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, do they? Does New York deserve one? No, we don't. I mean, uh, I live around here, um, but we're going to get one. And uh, uh, I mean, even the media, if you recall, we had this discussion here. Were were you know some of the media were were sort of unimpressed. Um, with uh, with Enterprise coming over here, meaning, oh, we're getting the fake one and everybody's getting the real one. This thing never flew in space or anything like that. And that seemed to be the, the press's attitude toward it, although uh, that seems to have calmed down a bit. Um, I'm trying to recall, I did ask uh, uh, at, a, uh, at a press conference uh, that, that we attended there um, as a result of our one thirty SDS one thirty four coverage, and I believe during uh, one of the, the 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 press conferences, I think I asked Mike Moses a question with reference to that, and he basically he said, you know, called it bunk. Uh, Gene McCulka with Talking Space again for either Mike Moses or, or Mike Leinbach. Um, this is a question with reference to the final disposition of the orbiters. Uh, New York is getting Enterprise, and folks over in the uh, New York area, or at least some, anyhow are characterizing Enterprise as a, quote, fake orbiter or a hand-me-down or something like that. What would you go ahead and say to folks like that? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is I, I certainly don't take uh, one or two people writing an opinion in the newspaper as a representative of the entire region, so I, uh, I'm not going to put much weight in any of those comments. Um, not slamming you guys in your jobs, but, um, but you know, it, it's, it's the media and what chooses to become news. And, uh, and so, you know, and Enterprise was, a, was a, a landmark uh, vehicle, a test bed for us, did all the approach and land tests. Uh, it, uh, it is not a space orbiter, and it was never designed to be, but it certainly did exactly what it was, was intended to be. Uh, I've actually visited it up at the Air and Space Museum in D.C., and it's a pretty cool ship to see. Um, as somebody who works with the the space orbiters, you do look right away and go, well, God, that doesn't look the same, and and it doesn't. It was built uh, a long time ago, and we've changed the the design a little bit, um, but uh, but it is every bit as important to this shuttle program as as Atlantis, Discovery, and Endeavor are. So you know, again, um, New York, you're getting an orbiter. I don't think Houston or Ohio can do anything about it. Um, do uh, does Ohio deserve one? 
you know, yeah. I mean, does Houston deserve one? <laughs> yeah. There's only one, but there was only three of them. You know, there's only three or four of them to go around, and that, and I think that was that was essentially the problem. Well, we'll just have to see where that goes. But in the meantime, Endeavor has gone to the California Science Center. Yep, and I know I know Endeavor's your your baby, Sawyer. I'm sorry. You'll have to go out to California to see her. I'll make any excuse to go see a space shuttle. It's okay. <laughs> Continuing along, speaking of space shuttles, if anybody has watched any of the NASA press conferences about space shuttle launches, you knew it was the Mike and Mike show. Mike Leinbach and Mike Moses, two of the main shuttle people who would always be there giving you the updates. Well, Mike Moses has now left NASA for a private company. And which private company are we talking about? Uh, Mike Moses is going to Virgin Galactic. He's moving the family over to Las Cruces, New Mexico, and is just said, uh, you know, it, it's got nothing to do with NASA. NASA, he's he's fully on board with with what what the future is bringing over there. He's fully on board with with the SLS plan. Um, but you know, again, he, he's an operations guy, and he said that uh, you know, a, a ten. 10 years of, of just sitting there writing flight rules uh, just did not appeal to him. And uh, um, John Shannon kind of sort of hinted at this uh, when he was in South Africa uh, speaking to a conference down there. He basically said he was losing uh, some, some, key, uh, some of his key shuttle management to, to private companies. And uh, I said, hmm, I wonder, I wonder who's leaving. Now we know. But uh, you know, again, Mike, Mike's an operations guy, um, and he wants to go ahead and, and preside over operations. And right now, NASA is not going to be in the business of operations for some time. These private companies are doing doing that, so you know you can't blame him. Um, he's he wants to. He's a hands-on kind of guy, and and you know, you know, wish him well and and wish his family well in their new uh, in the new home that's coming. <laughs> So Mike Moses is now with Virgin Galactic, and Virgin Galactic had another drop test recently of their Spaceship 2. That drop test was on October 17, 2011. So they performed their drop test, and everything continued as normal, and they were scheduled for an 11-minute landing. That landing became seven and a half minutes. The reason being was, as it was released, Spaceship 2 performed a nosedive and continued to fall like a rock. Richard Branson turned out to praise this as a test of their safety features, <laughs> and in doing so, they feathered the tail, as it's called, which basically makes it almost like a birdie that you would use in badminton, and it uses aerodynamics to help it fly and regain control. And it worked perfectly, and so instead of an 11-minute landing, it was seven and a half minutes. But that was quite a scare. Yeah, that would that would you know cause me to grab that statue on the dashboard, so to speak. Um, that was not a uh, uh, that was obviously not planned. I mean, yeah, Richard Branson went ahead and reflected, saying, "Well, at least our safety systems work, and you know that that's a good demonstration that they do work." But um, you know that's that's something that you got to go back to the drawing board and figure out. You know, this thing just isn't ready for prime time yet. Um, we got to go back and figure out what happened, what went wrong, and, and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And you know, they'll they'll hunker down and they'll fix it. And I'm sure that's one problem that's going to be awaiting uh, uh, Mike Moses's plate and and try to go ahead and figure out what just went wrong with that. And if nothing else, again, like Richard Branson himself said, it was a good test of the safety features and just goes to exemplify how, as he said it, they're trying to show how safe they are. Right, and sorry, if I'm not mistaken, Spaceship One had the same had had a had a similar problem or at least some kind of corkscrew problem going going on, on, on its first flight. And they went ahead and, and corrected that problem on, on the second flight, if I'm not if if I'm not correct if I'm not mistaken. And it did uh, it, it did fly true on that second flight. So again, they'll they'll figure it out. They'll they'll they'll, they'll hunker down and, and and figure out what the problem was and, and get it right. So I'm not, not it's it, it's cause for concern, but you know again they'll they'll figure it out. Exactly. All right, so we're trying to speed along here because we've got a lot more topics on our list here. So let's continue on to the next one that we have because. 
talked about the space shuttles and we've talked about all these private companies. Now, let's bring it back to NASA and specifically the NASA budget. It turns out that there were some markups made on a possible future NASA budget and what they decided to keep the same or add or take away from was quite surprising to many people. Gina, can you help break this down for us, please? Well, it looks to me like human spaceflight is going to stay intact. I think the White House asked for a budget about $19 billion. NASA, I think, would be level-funded at about $18 billion. And I think the current Space and Technology Committee in the now Republican-controlled House of Representatives is basically saying NASA would get something at about 15 to $16 billion. Human spaceflight would stay intact. Um, science and technology within NASA would definitely incur some cuts. So, you know, how that money gets shifted around within NASA, I suppose, is still ultimately up to NASA. But this is just a proposal in committees. Then it's got to go to ways and means. Then it's got to be written into legislation, hit the House floor. Then it has to also have the Senate side pass it, go to conference committee, and hit the president's desk and have him sign it. And these guys right now, they can't decide if today's Monday. So I'm not too, too worried that um, NASA just, uh, you know, signed its um, its uh, vacation fund for the year and they figured out, you know, how much they get to spend on doing what they want to do for activities. But I think also, you know, I, th- I, th- I think it's something to come that, It's remarkable to me that a party right now in power, the Republicans, leave the human spaceflight intact because that is something that is entirely patriotic and it's something that they can wave around the rest of the planet. I'm sorry, the rest of the countries on the planet and say, look what we've did, look what we've accomplished. You know, America is a great nation. Yet when it comes to science and technology right now, the G- the GOP doesn't really have a great reputation, so I'm not surprised that that's what they would decide to cut, um, earth science being one of them. So, Gene, do you have an opinion on this? I'm guessing you do. Yeah, I do, actually. First, you're probably right. I think, think um, like, like, okay, we'll, we'll get into the numbers a little bit. Um, the the White House did propose about uh, what was it uh, a budget of about 19 billion dollars for NASA for NASA for fiscal year 2012. Um, the and I'm trying to get the exact exact number here that they decided we're going to cut and this is significant. Instead of uh, 19.45 billion dollars under uh, under the the Obama uh, request. The uh, House markups, and again, I will say that, as as you pointed out, Gina, these are markups, and do not indicate, you know, honest to God legislation. The markups indicate that NASA should only get about 16.810 billion dollars for fiscal year 20, 2012, and that is a significant cut. Um, in the budget, you are right. I'm looking at the budget here, um, or 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 uh, the options here. Um, essentially, human spaceflight is preserved, uh, although they they do add the caveat here that they don't. The, of of uh, the committee's opinion is is this this commercial venture that uh, NASA's decided or or the White House has decided to go on. They're a little lukewarm on, but they agree that there has to be some sort of follow-up program. Um, what what really took it on the chin, unfortunately, was the uh, the science mission directorate. Um, you're right, Gina. They went ahead and took out a bunch of Earth science missions here. Um, they canceled the uh, OCO2 mission. Uh, which would have, uh, which would have, uh, uh, I believe, taken a look at CO2 levels. Um, they got rid of, um, or they're they're reducing by about 20% the venture class missions. Again, that these are you know Earth science style style missions. Um, that's gone. But the real real hammer, and I, I think you can see why Bobby Braun left the agency. Um, was in the new the the space technology sector. 
the president's request uh, for FY12 in this area was $1.024 billion. Uh, the markup, and, and I'll quote what, what they wrote here, um, the, saying that, quote, the, the committee, we support this endeavor generally, but believe these tough budgetary times argue for a smaller initial start and support and say that the uh, the House uh, Science Committee give this a markup of only $375 million, essentially decimating the area of new technologies research. I don't think that's the way to go here. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, too, now, and over the weekend, a mock-up of the James Webb Telescope appeared in Baltimore, and uh, – uh, NASA Administrator James Bolden gave a speech out there basically – um, I'm sorry, Charlie Bol- Bolden gave, gave, gave a speech out there saying, um, okay, uh, we've got a plan to try to fix uh, fix the, the James Webb telescope budget woes. Uh, we don't think that that money should come out of a, other programs that are doing well. That would be basically rewarding um, – you know, re- rewarding the, the web staff you know, or the web effort, but said we have to figure out a way to get this going. Um, uh, uh, former astronaut uh, James Grun- Grunsfeld was out there too, basically saying that we, you know, saying that Hubble has essentially reached its uh, reached its limit as far as what it could see or what we can see with Hu- with Hubble. You know, web is definitely going to be taking us in the next step, but how are we going to pay for this thing? And there was an editorial, I believe, um, just a couple of days ago in Space News uh, indicating that, uh, well, maybe we should look at the SLS. There's no defined mission for the SLS yet. It's just this big, heavy booster that we're trying to build, but right now it's a booster to nowhere. Um, why don't we go ahead and, and take some of the funds from the SLS and move them over to the James Webb Telescope? There was another article today uh, in, in the Space Review trying to go ahead and saying, well, why don't we link uh, the James Webb Telescope to human spaceflight the same way we linked uh, Hubble to, uh, to the shuttle? I don't know if you can do that with, with, um, with the web design. It's not designed to go ahead and, and be serviced by, by astronauts, so I don't know what the heck they're, they're going to do there or how they're going to go ahead and pay for it, but well, that, that's something to see, but Again, this is, does not bode. The, the budget here does not bode well, uh, or what the what uh, the Republicans are thinking about as far as NASA is concerned. We'll see what happens as it makes its way through the governmental systems, right? Indeed, um, time will tell on this. And um, next week they put together uh, uh, fiscal year 2013, so we'll have to see what how all this goes. Oh, that will be very interesting, and we'll yep. be sure to follow that. Yep. All right. We mentioned a little bit about the manned spaceflight budget, and included in that is the MPCV, the Multipurpose Crew Vehicle, or Orion. And there are talks now that Orion may fly as early as 2013 to help with the board tests, but not aboard your average rocket. What will they actually be using? It looks like, according to uh, an article here by uh, Todd Halverson, uh, dated uh, uh, October 15th on from Florida Today, uh, NASA is going to go ahead and use um, the Peacekeeper missile, apparently, to go ahead and, and test, the, uh, test the Orion. I guess the Orion is going to sit on top of this thing uh, with a, a launch escape system, and it will be launched on board a, one of these things. And uh, uh, it will essentially make sure that the um, that the launch escape system will work. Uh, I'm trying to go. Yep, it'll be the first stage of, of a Peacekeeper inter- intercontinental ballistic missile, and it'll be launching from Launch Complex 46 at uh, Cape Can- Canaveral Air Force Station. Uh, it'll take an Orion capsule over the Atlantic Ocean where uh, they'll, they'll go ahead and test the escape system and we'll hopefully see a Orion parachute shoot down into the ocean the same way we did with an Apollo capsule. 
Uh, if you recall, the Apollo used a small little booster called Little Joe or Little Joe and Little Joe Two to do essentially the same thing. So again, this is a test to make sure that everything is is working on board, and I'm sure that's going to be leading up to a you know possible Delta Four Heavy uh, launch uh, in a in a you know follow up launch in about a year or so after that. So things are moving along with the Orion. Good to know things are moving along because I know we've had discussions about will it even fly? Will it even get to the test flight point? It so. looks like it's going to. So we'll, we'll keep our finger. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, knocking wood. And I'm knocking my head here. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, you know, things will, will, will keep moving and keep moving along. But you know, again, this is subject to change without notice. We've got a, a, another election coming up, and uh, we'll have to see what happens there. So that's scheduled to hopefully take place two years from now. There's another thing that's scheduled to take place within the next year, and that is a test flight of Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser. The interesting thing is that the drop test is scheduled to take place from White Sands, New Mexico, which is where Virgin Galactic has their base. And isn't there a connection between the possible Dream Chaser test flight and Virgin Galactic? Yep, it looks like the Dream Chaser is going to be drop tested using Virgin Galactic's White Knight 2, uh, the same uh, vehicle that carries uh, Spaceship 1 and Spaceship 2. Um, and uh, we'll just see how it's, how it's going to work out. I guess what we'll be seeing is in miniature is uh, just you know, some, of the, some of the folks may not remember or, or have probably seen films of this. Uh, the drop test of the Enterprise from the 747 back in 1977. Uh, it, it'll be similar to that, and it, it'll test to see if if this thing could actually fly and actually deal with a with a reentry. So that's going to be kind of cool. Mm, that's going to be kind of cool to watch. But it's also going to be a, a, a grand test for Sierra Nevada to see if this thing actually, this concept actually works, and it should. I mean, the the, the HL20, which is this, what is this thing is based on, I believe, didn't get as far as as this. But I think there was a was a, a drop test of this went back in the 90s. But I guess we're we're getting more data on this. So you know, hopefully everything will go well, and and uh, Sierra Nevada will continue. With their uh, with their research on the um, on on the Dream Chaser, and uh, we'll get it up there and and flying. Exactly, because I know we got a chance to preview it a little bit as we were at the Kennedy Space Center for STS-135 when the agreement was officially signed between NASA and Sierra Nevada. Right, right. So we'll see if that schedule if that actually happens within the next year, as is scheduled. All right, now continuing along. We know that in the news lately has been falling satellites such as URs, which recently came down in the Pacific Ocean after the scare of not knowing where it was going to come down or when it was going to come down within a week period. Turns out it's happening all over again with the ROSAT satellite. Yep. Um, this is a, uh, a European uh, vehicle that... Uh, uh, is is now defunct. It's almost like an instant replay of, uh, of uh, URs. There's they expect about maybe 30 pieces to survive reentry. Um, and again, this this is not controlled. There is no more fuel on board the spacecraft, and we just have to go ahead, batten down the hatches, and watch. Uh, it, but again, it, it it kind of underscores how big a problem. Uh, the derelict satellite issue, or, or you know, the space debris issue, really, really is. I mean, just um, this past, uh, just this past week, the uh, uh, the uh, ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization, was we were launching the first uh, of a uh, of a constellation of satellites that's going to observe uh, precipitation. This is part of a, a NASA. Uh, led uh, mission, uh, mission to go ahead and observe uh, Earth's weather uh, from different vantage points and to measure the Earth's precipitation. Um, they had to actually delay that launch for about a minute, and as uh, the Indians Indians put it, it was a strategic delay, quote close quote, to make sure that the uh, vehicle does not encounter debris and you know either 
during on its flight plan or uh, on on the initial flight plan or or on its ascent. And uh, so that's the first time I I, re- I can recall that a that a launch has been postponed due due to a piece of space debris. So again, this this is getting to be a real problem. And um, there's a the, just as as a follow up to all this, there's a, a Canadian company, uh, McDonald McDonald Detweil and Associates, that's designing the spacecraft. And and this is from uh, uh, a space.com article um, that uh, our friend Denise Chow wrote, um, basically saying uh, that uh, th- this company is trying to design spacecraft. That will essentially fly as as small little gas stations and be able to hook up to satellites that either a are are nearing the you know the end of their fuel life but are still viable and can, can keep keep those satellites in, in in the keep those birds in the air and functioning or b uh, fill them up just so much that you can either a put these things into a What's called a graveyard orbit, or an orbit that would, you know, leave all the operating satellites alone, or bring it in the satellite into a much lower orbit so you can control exactly where this thing, where this thing lands, in, you know, either in the Indian Ocean or or the Pacific or the Atlantic or something like that, but just away from any type of populated centers. Uh, it, it, it's a good idea, but it, for some reason or other, it hasn't caught on. Alrighty then, so remember to wear your helmets when you walk outside so you don't get hit by satellite. (laughs) (laughs) Continuing along then, we weren't kidding when we said it's a busy news week. The next story is regarding the Russian Soyuz spacecraft, and we have two stories about the Russian Soyuz. The first is that after the Soyuz progress launch failure that occurred a couple of months back... NASA is giving the AOK for Soyuz on their end, right? Yeah, the I believe uh, Bill, uh, NASA's Bill Gerstenmaier, uh, Tom Stafford, former astronaut, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Joseph W. Dwyer, U.S. U.S. Navy retired. Uh, he's a member of the uh, NASA's uh, Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel. Uh, appeared before Congress, basically, basically uh, unveiling their uh, their estimates as far as how uh, um, how satisfied they were of uh, the Russians um, the Russians idea to go ahead and fix uh, the, the uh, Soyuz booster and uh, everybody basically said that uh, we are satisfied um, we're satisfied with a lot of our contingency plans um, there were a few questions uh, one I believe was asked of Tom Stafford uh, about possibly reviving the shuttle, a lot of a lot of um, folks of in uh, in Congress are, are still, you know, hung up on trying to revive the the, the spacecraft. And uh, Tom Stafford has basically said what we've been saying here, and and I will go ahead and once again mention um, uh, Mr. Wayne Hale's blog there uh, when he was with NASA, basically saying that that bird flew a long time ago. Um, and that's essentially what Tom Stafford said. They said it would take about two years to just restart the external tank, uh, um, the external tank assembly line. So you know, don't even go there. I mean that 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 bird's that bird's been been cooked. Uh, but again, uh, the uh, all three of them responded to questions about uh, about the Soyuz repair. They were quite happy with what they were seeing, and they reported back that uh, they were very pleased with what the Russians were telling them. Even though some of the senators and I mean some of the folks in Congress were questioning the fact that they are getting it from you know, from Russia and they're not there watching all of this. So um, anyway, the, the the bottom line is this. The, the Soyuz booster is good to go. NASA's got full confidence in it that it will go ahead and function properly, and it's got full confidence in the Soyuz as a as a um, as a ferry uh, to get our crews up there. And barring any problems with a um, uh, a launch expected on October 30th, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, a Progress 45. We're good to go to launch uh, the next crew to do the ISS in uh, the mid-November. Yep, hopefully it is what they just said and what they have said in the past, an isolated incident with the progress failure. 
And hopefully all goes well on their next scheduled launch from Baikonur, which is once again for Sunday, October 30th, 2011 at 10.11 GMT, which is 6.11 a.m. Eastern Time. Continuing along with the Soyuz, though, is that the Soyuz, for the last 50 years or so, has been launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, which has been Russia's go-to launch site. For the first time ever, the Soyuz is now scheduled to launch somewhere other than Baikonur, thanks to the company Arian Space. And where will they be launching them from? This will be from the Ariane Space platform in French Guiana. This has never been done before, so it's going to be very, very interesting to see a Russian vehicle being launched from a from a European uh, from a U- European launch site. Uh, the uh, Soyuz rocket is is going to carry two uh, you know, Galileo navigational satellites and. Uh, now, according to uh, an article, I believe this is from AFP, basically saying that uh, they're not exactly disclosing how much money Russia is getting for the deal, but they are saying uh, it's it's going to give them a good shot in the arm here as far as uh, finances are, are concerned. Um, out of this, out of the deal um, with that Russia signed with Ariane Space, it's also getting a. Uh, I believe another medium-range vehicle to go alongside um, to go alongside the Ariane 5 capability, um, and a uh, a future a future vehicle that is they're calling the Vega. They were also saying too that uh, the Galileo satellites themselves are are of some note because uh, this it means that the world's biggest and to quote the article it means that the world's biggest trading block will not have to depend on a foreign power for what's now essentially an economic tool so um we'll just have to have to see how this all goes but it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see uh, you know a soyuz booster this booster that's been in service for for i don't know how many years uh, being launched from a different facility other than than uh, than its home port which is baikonur so again that is going to be launched from the guiana space center in french guiana and that is currently scheduled for launch on Thursday, October 20th at 10.34 UTC, which is 6.34 a.m. Eastern Time. And for more information on it, you could check out their new website, 3 launchersontheequator.com. And that's where you can also see the launch. Okay, so now let's wrap things up with a continuation. We talked two weeks back about the 100-year Starship Symposium, which Mark attended, in Orlando, Florida. We then continued again last week with an interview, which he got, and I believe we have another interview again this week on our third part of our 100-year Starship Symposium coverage. Right, Mark? That's right, and if anybody's worried that I'll be talking about this for the next 100 years, I'll probably stop short of that number, but... uh, (laughs) Needless to say, it was a uh, it was a, a a very unique weekend, and among the many speakers that I heard was the interview that we're gonna pass on to you now, and I hope you enjoy it. I think you'll be surprised. And from the 100-year Starship Study Symposium in Orlando, Florida, I've got another guest to talk with us about some interesting things. So, without further ado, Chantel Lewis, welcome to Talking Space. Hi, Mark. How, how are you doing? I'm doing good, and I'm excited to be able to bring something really unique to our listeners from the 100-year Starship study. I want to keep a secret what you presented on at the YSS, and uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I remember seeing that during your education, you had an interest in geology, and that was one of the things that surprised me. How did you start with that? What was, what was the fascination there to pursue that in education? Well, I'd have to say I grew up in Saskatchewan, and, you know, it was the middle of nowhere. No cities, nothing. All I looked at every night, night after night, was the sky and the stars. And and seeing them, you know, I, I wanted to go there and I wanted to explore. I wanted to go to the moon. And, you know, it had a lot of, to do with my father and getting me interested in science. So right out of high school, I went to 
uh, U of S and studied geology on a scholarship from Cameco. And, you know, after a while, I, I just decided to, um, you know, you're always going to need a, a scientist to actually pick up the rocks and touch the rocks on the moon. And I thought this was my best way of actually getting up to the moon. Since then, I was, you know, studying cyanobacteria that grows in rocks and taking samples out in the Mojave Desert, Atacama, Colorado, New Mexico, you know, um, and it's something that's always been interesting for me. Were you there for the uh, keynote speech by Ariel Waldman? I was. She was amazing. It was a bit of a surprise to to hear her talk about having worked at NASA, kind of having that, uh, gee, maybe I could get a job there, and she did. And after she was there for a bit, she said, you know, you don't have to be part of NASA to be an explorer. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, that really hit home for me because, you know, I grew up and I said to my mom, like, when I was seven years old, I want to work at NASA. And where I came from, it was kind of like, uh, I don't think so. But, you know, I've, I've done internships with NASA Ames and out in, out in Mojave Desert. There was actually a documentary with the Discovery Channel about in, I think in 2005, called Mars Rising, and it had a six-part series of the scientists that are doing all the work behind what it would be like to, to you know, live on Mars, and um, yeah, that was the very first time that I was out there in the, in the, in the field with, with NASA Ames for my internship, and you get to see a whole new world, and, and just the whole exploration is just fascinating. You mentioned some involvement with different organizations, and again, I'm kind of misleading our listeners to to not guess what you presented on because I think it was such a fascinating topic. But what are some of the organizations that you've been around? Uh, you mentioned Open Luna. Open Luna is an organization um, with you know it's our mission to go to the moon. It's an open source company that you know if you have a skill such as drawing, website de- design. If you're working on rockets, anything, they're taking everybody. And it's got the common goal to just go to the moon. Um, I've also been a part of the National Space Society. Um, I met Mark Hopkins at actually a Mars Society meeting. So I've been involved, heavily involved in the science communities. It's my goal, really, to to get kids involved in science and keep them interested and have them exploring. It's it's kind of funny because I remember I was out at a ISDC in Washington and I was talking to a few of the rocket scientists and I kind of noticed that a few of them are missing some fingers and stuff and and that's when it hit me that kids nowadays aren't really allowed to you know play with explosives and stuff. There's a lot of different re- restrictions. So we have to come up with a new way of how to get them interested and spark that interest again when they can't when there's now, you know, boundaries put on different things. Now, you had another interest growing up. Yes. Can I, can I expose the secret now? Absolutely. Now, what was it you talked about at the 100-year Starship study? I talked about the aesthetics of space. You know, I wanted to take the technical aspect out of it because we've been focusing on so much of the engineering and, and stuff like you said, and... I just wanted to make them realize, you know, we need to also think about our everyday comforts that we have here on Earth and what Earth provides for us and the beauty of it and how we'll have to take that into consideration when we're designing our 100-year starship. For instance, if you look at the Earth, you know, there's many beautiful designs and stuff and, and it's all designed with a purpose. Um, I, in, my, in my talk, I mentioned a leopard and her spots and how that she was designed for survival, you know, and then we take this, this and bring it into the fashion world. So I think that's something we have to look at even um, through spacesuit design and stuff. We need to bring individualism into these garments as well. It can't all just be uh, similar. We need to think about we're going to be here for over 100 years and... Um, what, what, what are we going to bring that is enjoyable to us? You have all the engineers and computer scientists and stuff working on all these problems, but they're, they're forgetting like, um, the everyday needs of humans. And the, you know, 
earth provides us with such beauty and we forget that we are, you know, we need that. Um, you can only look at a, a desert for so long. There's certain things that you have to, you know, that earth has provided us with all these beautiful structures and trees and stuff. And, and we've become accustomed to enjoying that. And we need to think about bringing that into these new, if we, you know, uh, terraform Mars and stuff, we need to think about that. My background is in, you know, fashion as well. So this is where I bring my design expertise and merge the science, what's going on in the science community. And I talk to all the scientists and see what's going on. And I translate that and I bring it into my fashion designs and, um, and then bring it to the general public and, and get them interested in different things. So tell me, you were, uh, you were a student in geology and then you made that switch to fashion design. How did that happen? Um, well, I think fashion design is something that I've always, always loved, but I, I, I didn't have any training in it. And it was just, you know, I was doodling all the time. Um, but I guess because I had a scholarship, I was, I was bound into turn, you know, growing up around in the prairies, it was all about science and exploration. And that's what you needed. The arts world was not really, um, nourished there. And you knew that it's, not, you know, my mom would say all the time, like, why do you want to go into the arts? It's such a struggle. And, you know, um, so it wasn't really even a question. But after I was doing ge uh, geology, I realized this is something I want to pursue. So I applied for um, the International Academy of Design in Toronto, and I got in, and I ended up winning a scholarship there as well. And I was, you know, uh, I couldn't even apply for this um, scholarship from Saskatchewan because you couldn't even buy the supplies there to apply. Um, but when I moved to Toronto, there was one day before the deadline and I said, Oh, is there like an art store around here? And I went and bought some supplies and from like 11 till five in the morning, I um, did created this project and ended up winning. And that's kind of when I realized that uh, it's a natural talent that I have. Um, but coming from Saskatchewan, I, really wasn't sure what I was doing in fashion. I wasn't sure what its worth is. But I think after I did this Bell Celebrity Gala event, which raised over a million dollars in one night for Sick Kids Foundation, that's when it really hit me of my full background and how I can, um, or what my purpose is. So I decided that I'm going to take what's going on in the science world and bring it into the fashion and, you know, throw huge charity events and, and raise money and then funnel it back into the science world with scholarships and stuff. Because um, for me, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to go to university if it wasn't for a scholarship. And, um, and then I think with the fashion part of it, I am able to influence girls and get them interested and, you know, dress some of the top celebrities that are in all the magazines and being talked about right now. And so far from the fashion point of view in, in the science world, there's some futuristic dresses and futuristic fashion shows and stuff at Yuri's Night, which is a lot of fun and some amazing uh, pieces of art there. But um, the idea behind my fashion and uh, space is kind of doing it in a, a normal way with just tiny influences like beating Mars topography on on couture gowns and um, things like that. So it's always interesting for me to go to these science conventions and see what the new technologies are, are going on right now and other projects that scientists are working on. So you really can see a need for a, uh, someone to design a wedding dress on a, on a starship someday. Of course. I guess the uh, last question that I can throw your way is how can people follow uh, some of your fashion design and and see what's going on in that part of your world? Um, well, I have a website, chantellewis.com. And, yeah, I hope, I hope to be doing some really crazy events. I'm based out of Los Angeles. There's a lot going on in Hollywood. I'm working on my future collection, which will really tie in the space. Sounds fun. I'm looking forward to seeing more there. And... Just want to say thank you for joining us here on Talking Space. 
Oh, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure meeting you. And for all the listeners that have just met Chantel Lewis, um, if you're disappointed that we only talked for 11 minutes or thereabouts on that interview, um, well, <laughs> stick with us. Uh, I'll keep in touch with her as time goes on, and I bet there'll be more to talk about because she has a lot of interest and a lot of things space, and I appreciate her joining us. I I almost ask with trepidation, could she? Because I, I regard her with all the other speakers there as being a lot of very busy people with a lot going on. And uh, once again, thank you, Chantel, for joining us. Definitely. And Mark, thank you again for your continued coverage of the 100 Year Starship Symposium. Yeah, Mark, you can go on, you know, you can go on for 100 years because, you know, we had a we had discussion offline a while back ago on, on that whole thing. And I can still sit there and, and just listen to you for hours about some of the stuff you brought back and some of the information you brought back. So, again, thanks a lot for sharing all that with us. It'll be something we'll bring up from time to time. I'm hoping for some printed information on some of the presentations, and I think that'll be a lot of interest to people to take a peek at. There, there's one person on, on this panel here that, that can't wait for that either. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've got a few IOUs to you and some other folks for, uh, for some of the notes that I have. And uh, if they weren't so ugly, I would, uh, I would, <laughs> I would, put, I would put them out there on a uh, – on a website, but I, I gee whiz, <laughs> I'm so far from being a good student, it isn't funny. Uh, don't worry, my handwriting still looks like Sanskrit, so don't, so don't worry about it. Well, honestly, not only could I listen to Mark for hours on end, I could listen to this show for hours on end, as many of our listeners have, but... Unfortunately, our time here is up, so I would like to thank everybody here who joined us today on episode 342. So thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. And just uh, a real quick, quick aside, Sawyer. Too, uh, I know this isn't a, even even a space-related story, but in some ways it is. Um, just want to go ahead and and uh, send my uh, deepest, serious, and and sincere sympathies to the fam family of Dan Weldon, who we lost um, so tragically this weekend at a at a race in Las Vegas. Race car drivers and, and, and astronauts have similar mentalities. They know darn well that they go into these things and, and it could be their last. And uh, unfortunately, in a rather violent way, it, it was uh, Mr. Weldon's last uh, this weekend. But uh, again, my condolences to him and to, to his family. Um, again, Sawyer, this was a fun, this, this was a fun show. Thank, you know, thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you all for joining us. Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. And, uh, I'll be back. And thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. Oh, I'll be watching that budget for NASA, so you'll hear more from me later on. Awesome. And just a quick aside to what we've been taught. I mentioned that this is show 342. To clear up some emails I've received, this is not our 342nd episode. The numbering system is that the first number is the season we're in, so that's season three. The last number is the episode number of that season. So this is season three, episode number 42, just to clear that up for everybody. And once again, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.